Well, if you're visiting here this morning, we want to welcome you as well. We're in the middle of a study, of a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 5 at present. And what I want to do is read the overall text, and our point of focus will be just one verse today. But let's go ahead and look at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. But before we read the text, I want us to think about powerless, joyless, and seemingly lifeless Christians. People who are true believers, but yet are they seem to live a life that is powerless. They lack joy. And the question is, if Christ has raised the dead sinner from the grave of depravity and unbelief and has breathed life into them, that they're born again and the Spirit of God indwells them, why are there so many professing believers who appear so joyless, who appear lifeless, who appear powerless? And I say, and I emphasize the word appear because if they're truly in Christ, they have power, they ought to have joy, and they certainly have life. Amen? But why? Let's ponder that as we read from John chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Jesus, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as He's standing before the hypocritical religious Pharisees of His day, declaring His own deity, the fact that He is God in human flesh. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself and has given Him authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Our Father, I pray that you'll open our eyes this morning to have a deeper understanding of the power and the reality of this text. All those who are in Christ this morning, I pray that they would walk out of here refreshed with a deeper, richer understanding of who you are and what you provide for us as believers in Christ. For those, Lord, who remain dead, who perhaps think they know you, but they do not know you, I pray that you would radically awaken them, that you would breathe life into them, that you would convict them in their sin. Cause them to be born again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our text today will reveal for us the life and the power of Christ and His life in the believer. The Word of God tells us that as believers, although we were once dead in trespasses and sins, that Christ enabled us to hear His voice. Okay, we were dead. You couldn't hear. He enabled us to hear. And He gave us eternal life. It's a gift. And that life, that life which is eternal, does not begin at some future moment. It doesn't begin when you die. It begins the moment that Christ causes you to hear. The moment that He enables you to believe. In other words, the moment that one is born again, that person has everlasting life. has it now. The power of such a life now, here and now. 
The life of the true believer is a life that is full because it's Christ's life within us. Scripture speaks of holy joy as being part of true Christianity. It's represented as such throughout Scripture in a very important part of our Christian walk. We're exhorted and pressed with great earnestness to delight ourselves in the Lord. And when we do, He shall give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, verse 4. Psalm 97, verse 12 says, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. The only people that are righteous are those who are in Christ. Because no one has righteousness in and of themselves. It's the righteousness of Christ that covers the believer. And therefore, we are to rejoice. Matthew 5, verse 12, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, He says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is in chains when he writes this letter. In prison, he says, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Later on in chapter 4 of the same book, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 also commands us to rejoice always. Always. We're rejoicing in the giver of life. We're rejoicing in the one who's provided life everlasting. The one who has life in himself. Jesus Christ. That has redeemed us. Who's called us. who saved us. Now only God gives life. The Son of God is life. God the Holy Spirit bears witness of Christ who lives within the believer. That's resurrection life. That's the power of the resurrection. From spiritual deadness made alive in Christ. Therefore, the Christian life ought to be filled with excitement and adventure. Every day. Every day. All day. The life that we have in Christ is meant to be complete. Rewarding. Exciting. Satisfying. With a new and growing significance of life every day. Jesus Christ gives a whole new meaning to, the, to living as He provides full satisfaction and perfect guidance. It is the Lord who feeds His flock. He's the bread of life. We're His sheep. He feeds His sheep. Amen? So that we can be satisfied. He causes us to lie down in green pastures. We can be settled down. We can be at perfect rest in the midst of turmoil within this world. It is written by the Apostle John in 1 John 4.19. It says, We love Him because He first loved us. We don't generate love for God outside of God loving us first. Our love for Him is a responsive love. He provides love for us. Romans chapter 5 says that the love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Yeah, that's a gift also. To be able to love God in return is a gift because He first loves us. He dispenses His grace upon us, enabling us to love Him in return. So here we see the magnified love of God which is graced to the believer. He loved us while we had no love towards Him, let alone any love for Him. That's grace. The Christian's love towards God is the fruit of God's love within them. Us loving Him is a fruit of His love for us. And God gives the believer a spirit to love Him because He loved them from eternity past, from before the foundation of the earth, 
He chose those who are His, the Bible says. So if the love we have for God is the fruit of His love for us and the product of that abiding love, you know what it is? The product of abiding love is joy. To abide in the love of Christ and that relationship that we have with Him, the product is joy. Joy in the mind. Joy in the heart. Flowing out of the life of the believer. The question is, why do so many Christians that he's raised from spiritual deadness. He's breathed life into them. He's brought them out of the grave of depravity. Why do they live such joyless, seemingly meaningless lives? It's verse 25, or verse 26 rather, of John chapter 5 says, As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And His life is in you. If you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you have no spiritual life. You're dead. Dead and already condemned because of unbelief, says the Bible. So my hope is that this morning as we conclude, that we'll be able to pinpoint the cause of spiritual joylessness for the believer that anyone in here may be lacking. And spiritual life, hopefully by the grace of God, for those who don't know Christ today. But the only source of life, the only source of power, the only source of grace is the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. And what I just read here is Jesus' discourse of His deity. Now the reason Jesus is going on, actually in verses 17 to 42, which, or 47, which is the end of the chapter, Jesus is proclaiming His deity. He's declaring the fact that He is God in the flesh. And what started all of this was He had healed a man, a crippled man, by the pool of Bethesda. He walked in to the pools of Bethesda, and there was laying among the pools many crippled, many lame, and so on. He walked up to one man, and He healed that one man. Jesus was accused to the Pharisees of doing a work on the Sabbath, being a Sabbath violator. And he said, look, if you're going to accuse me of breaking the Sabbath, then you're accusing the Father. So then, they ceased accusing him as Sabbath breaker and began to accuse him as a blasphemer because he declared himself to be equal with God. And to declare to be equal with God is to declare to be God. A declaration of deity. So Jesus does not withdraw here when he's accused. He presses forward. He moves forward and he expounds truth after truth regarding his deity, regarding his power, regarding the fact that he alone, he has life in himself just as the Father has life in himself. So it's only God who's the source and the designer of life. So Jesus makes his claim of deity, the fact that he is God in verses 21 and 22 and then he goes on to express them in verse 24. Look at verse 21 again. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now in verse 24 he says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me, has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus says, whoever hears my word, 
believes and believes has eternal life. So here's declaring to provide eternal life. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh. That's Jesus, He is the Word. So, the assurance of salvation does not begin at death or at a future judgment, but rather at the moment of true belief. Jesus says, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me, look, has everlasting life. Has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but He's passed from death to life. You've passed over. Has passed from is in the perfect tense. It's an accomplished transfer. It's a settled status, a, a settled condition. Life. Everlasting life. The life of the Son of God in the believer. Here now, in verses 25 to 29, Jesus spoke about four different resurrections. First, He described the resurrection of the lost sinner into eternal life. That's spiritual resurrection. We looked at that last time, verse 25. Today in verse 26, we see the second resurrection that He references, and it's the resurrection power that He has in Himself. The third type of resurrection that he'll speak of, which we'll get to next time, is resurrection that is a future resurrection of life, which he speaks of believers being raised from the dead. And then the fourth is the resurrection of condemnation for the already condemned unbeliever. Last time, we observed this first resurrection, which is a spiritual resurrection. If you're in Christ, He resurrected you from spiritual deadness, an inability to understand, grasp, or, or walk with a knowledge of God. Relationally. A true relationship. So He's speaking of the spiritually dead. Verse 25, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. The lost sinner before he comes to faith in Christ, is lifeless and helpless. He's just as lifeless and helpless spiritually as a physically dead corpse is helpless to raise himself out of the casket. It takes a supernatural, miraculous work of God because if you're dead, you're, you're dead. The lost sinner is helpless to save himself. He cannot resurrect himself. A miracle must occur. That's what salvation is. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. If you're saved, it's a miracle. He raised you from deadness. Jesus made it clear in verse 24, most assuredly, truly, truly, very, verily, verily, amen, amen, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Hearing his word is to hear with the heart. Many people hear with the ears that are attached to their head. And they will end up in hell. They will face God in a different manner. If you die in Christ, you will face God and have eternal, blissful, peaceful, joyful, everlasting, glorified rest. If you die outside of Christ, you will face God in eternity, in hell, not joy, bliss, and rest, but the wrath of God. God is everywhere. Those who go to hell face God, but they face His wrath forever and ever and ever and ever. If you're saved, you will not face that wrath. You have life. That life is a life of eternal significance, which is a quantity of life, but not also is it a quantity of life for the believer. It's also a quality of life here and now. 
right now. So to hear and to believe in Christ is to abide. And to abide means to continue on with. To trust, to obey, to be a disciple, a learner, a follower of Christ. Not simply a hearer who hears with the ear, but a one who hears with the heart follows. Jesus said in John 8.31, when some Jews believed in him, he said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You know how many people claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and they're not? Do a test. Do you abide in Christ? Do you follow Christ? Abide means to continue on with. A relational continuation that deepens and grows and reflects the fact that the living God does live in me. In verse 25, when Jesus said the hour is coming and now is, that hour is not to be pushed into some single historical time slot. It was a beginning hour. It was a beginning hour of an era. We're still living in that era. Is it true that Jesus is the life then? Amen? It's true. Is it true that Jesus is still the life today? Yes, it is. Amen. For anyone who believes then, or who any, anyone who believes now, or anyone who will believe tomorrow, the only way they can believe is by the life, and that's Jesus Christ. So the hour is coming, and now is. Jesus said, I who stand before you, Pharisees, am the life. That hour is now. He had raised people from spiritual deadness up to this point in his earthly ministry, and the hour is yet to come. The spiritual resurrection was... There was a full expression of it when Jesus died and rose from the dead. There was even a more complete, full expression of that new era at Pentecost when the Spirit of God fell upon the church. And we still see life being birthed into the souls of dead men and women today, don't we? So to review point number two, we go from Christ who speaks to the dead to point number two in review Christ gives life to the dead it goes on, he goes on to say and those who hear will what? they will live those who hear will live first of all they can't hear because they're dead he causes them to hear and because they can hear they hear with the ear of the heart and they therefore follow because they have life so the capacity to hear the voice of the Son of God corresponds with the power of the voice that speaks Many people claim to be spiritual, amen? They hear voices, they talk to little rocks, they do chants, they rock back and forth and all this. Whatever they're hearing, whatever they're doing, that's not a spirit that is the spirit of Almighty God. Even Satan masquerades as an angel of what? Light. So in other words, his voice is a life-giving voice, and therefore the only basis for which the dead are enabled to hear at all is by the spirit of Almighty God. The voice of Christ. Because Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never, what? Perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. The spiritually dead who hear the voice of Christ, are raised to spiritual and eternal life. They can never be snatched away. They can never fall away. And they can never walk away. If they can walk away from the faith, that means they're apostate. And if they're apostate, which means a turning away from, it means they were never of the faith. Because those who respond to His call, to His voice, cannot be snatched out of His hand. 
John said they went out from us because they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us, proving that they were never really of us. So in John 5, 25 to 29, we witness the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. Last time, point one, Christ speaks to the spiritually dead. Point two, last time, Christ grants life to the spiritually dead. Here and now. So the order is like this. First, God plants His life within the one in whom He desires to be His child. That's the work of God. Second, because of that new life, the child of God now hears the Word of God, He believes and He follows. Thirdly, the child of God increasingly grows and He experiences that life within daily. So those who have been called by God have eternal life as well as this, abundant life now. They have quantity of life, everlasting life, and quality of life because of that everlasting life which indwells them, which is now. That's abundant life. My question, brothers and sisters, is your life abundant? Do you have abundant life? Plentiful, rich, overflowing with the power and the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking rich monetarily. I'm talking rich in fellowship, relationally with the living God. Is there proof of it? You know, it's possible to be saved and to miss the abundant life that God provides right now. We're privileged to enter into this increasingly abundant life as we yield and permit Christ to daily change our lives. Continually repenting, by the way. I repent every day. I hope you do. You've got to repent just in your mind. Just think about what you think about. Right? You're constantly, are you not constantly confessing your thoughts to God? keeping short accounts with Him. Today we look at point number three. Christ, the only life source. And you know what? He's the only life source for the dead and the only life source for the living. He's the only one that can bring dead to life and He's the only one who can sustain those who have spiritual life. Now next time we'll look at point 4 in verses 27 to 29, which is Christ the judge of the living and the dead. We will see the abundant life that is available now because of the glorious gift of eternal life that we have in Christ. Point number 3, Christ the only source of life. So the second resurrection that's really outlined here is the power, the resurrection power that Christ has because He is the source of life. Eternal life and abundant life both come from God alone. Verse 26, 4. As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Now this word for is an important word here. It's a primary particle which properly assigns reason or an explanation in order to intensify or strengthen an idea. We're talking about resurrection power here. So he says, for, as the Father has life in himself, remember who he's talking to, he's talking to the religious leaders who thought they knew God. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now if you're going to declare to, to, to be the source of life, you're declaring to be God again. Imagine what this did to these hypocrites. They would have been indignant. Outraged. 
wanting to kill him. They sought to kill him many times, but it was not yet his hour. When it was his hour, he was then delivered into the hands of man, crucified, buried, and he rose again because he has power in himself not only to lay his life down, but to take it up again. So, this is important as it explains how it is that the Son can exercise life-giving power and resurrection life by His powerful Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. No one's going to come to faith in Jesus Christ outside of the preaching of His Word. Well, what about the pygmies down in the jungle somewhere? You know what? If God wants to send an angel to them in human form and proclaim the Gospel, He'll do it. If they're the Lord's and they're going to be saved, God will get them saved. We don't have to worry. Or he's going to use a missionary. He'll prompt your heart for some part of the world and he'll prompt you to go and he'll call you to go and you'll go and you might preach the gospel for ten years and two people might get saved. But those are the two people that it was ordained before the foundation of the earth to be saved. Come on, somebody. So it's because like God the Father, he has life in himself. God is self-existent. Jesus is claiming to be self-existent here. The living God. These hard-hearted religious hypocrites, they would have been outraged. Because you know what? They knew, what we know as the Old Testament, they know what the Word said. They certainly didn't know what it meant by what it said, obviously, because they missed Christ, but they knew what it said. They knew that it was God alone who breathes life into mankind in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. They also knew that it was God alone who was the fountain of life. In Psalm 36, 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. That's God's light. In Psalm 16, 11, You will make known to me the path of life. Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? In other words, you are not going to die one hour prior, one second prior to the ordained time that God has for you. He knew exactly when you would be born because He ordained it. He knew exactly when you would be born again if you're in Christ because He preordained it. He'll know exactly when you will die physically. So may we make the most of our time, amen? Because you don't know how long you have. Tomorrow's promise to who? To no man. Psalm 66, 9. Bless our God, O peoples, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. You will not die prematurely. So, the words of Christ here must be understood against the backdrop of this eternal truth. It was well known to these Pharisees that only God had life in Himself, let alone the ability to give life. And here's Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, making these great claims before these pious, upright hypocrites. These claims as a source of life were attributed to God alone of which Jesus was making claim to. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Now, this does not mean that Jesus gained this privilege only after the Incarnation. In other words, that He gained that privilege and ability because He became a man. The prologue of John chapter 1, verses 1 and on have already declared that for us. That He is the pre-incarnate Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. 
And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14 says, And then that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, life in Himself. Not when He became a human being, not when He lowered Himself out of glory and took on humanity, but always and forever. Eternity past, eternity future. And right there, right then, He had power in and of Himself, just as the Father does. Imagine now the outrage on their faces. See, unlike us, the life of Christ is not a derived life, meaning the result of created life. Jesus is not a creature, He's a creator. Cults teach that He's created. He has life in Himself. He's able to speak life into others. So, the words here, granted the Son to have life, means to hold or to administer. So inasmuch as all creatures live and move and have their being in God, Christ has life in Himself. In Himself. There's nobody in this world that has the ability to give life except Jesus Christ. No evangelist, no creed, no medium, no guru, no counselor, no cult, no nothing. Christ alone. If, you don't, if your life is not from Christ and in Christ, you have no life. All you have is a physically dead carcass. Your physical carcass that is spiritually dead. You're an empty tomb. Jesus accused the Pharisees of being whitewashed tombs full of what? Dead men's bones. They appeared white and holy on the outside, but inside they were dead. They had no life. They did not have the life of God. They didn't have Christ. So these Jews, to which Jesus was claiming His divine power, were well aware as to who gives life-giving power. Now, some at this point will claim that Christ is inferior to the Father. If the Father grants the Son to have life, he says, well, then he's inferior to the Father. It's not true. It's important that we understand the distinction. When Christ became a man, he set aside his attributes. He didn't set aside his deity. He was always God, always has been God. He was God then, and he'll always be God. What he did is he set aside the privilege of using his divine power when and where he wanted it. He subjected himself to the leading of the Father. Philippians 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is what's known as the kenosis, a word for emptiness, the self-emptying the, the self of Christ in the incarnation. The setting aside of certain divine attributes, the laying aside of in, the independent exercise of His divine powers, but always having the power, because He is the life, because He is God. We also see his conscious acceptance of obedience to the divine will of the Father, which led him to death by crucifixion. Of which, by the way, he had the power to raise himself up from. Speaking of his own life, Jesus said in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, 
Who can kill God? Nobody. I lay it down of myself, and I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. That death was not outside of the control of Christ. It was preordained. Christ was crucified before the foundation of the earth. He humbled himself in order to be delivered into the hands of man. Crucified. Buried. And then raise himself up the third day. Only God can do that. 1 John 5.11 And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Only in the Son. No one has eternal life outside of Christ. And I said before, if, if someone says they're a Christian and they believe that Jesus is the only way for them but there's other ways to God, so long as you're sincere, you either need to repent of that thinking by God's grace or you're not saved. Broad, broad is the way, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Many go that way. Straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. Very few go in that way. Christ is the only source of eternal life. It is His life that is in you, brothers and sisters. Christ's life by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is known throughout Scripture as the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Son. And the Spirit of Almighty God is equal with the Father and equal with the Son. You don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have the Son. You don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. Life is in the Son. John 14, 15. Jesus said, I will pray the Father. He's talking to His disciples. I will pray the Father and He will give you another Helper and He may abide with you forever. Jesus was going... His physical body, he was going to die and then ascend back to heaven. He said, I will send you a helper, spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Christ is the only source of life. Christ is also the only source of true fulfillment, true wholeness, wholeness and abundant life now. Now. Is your life abundant, Christian? Do you have overflowing joy because of your living relationship with Jesus Christ? Is your life plentiful? Is it complete due to that relationship? Is it a product of that relationship? Or do you lack abundant life? If you lack it, perhaps you're drinking from the wrong well. Spending your time, your money, and your energy on vain, empty, dead things that make have no eternal significance. And then you're wondering, why don't I have the joy of Christ that others I know have? Why don't I have that? You're probably drinking from the wrong well. Isaiah 55, Ho! Everyone who thirsts. Oh, that woke some people up. Come on now. <laughs> Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk. Without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in what? Abundance. 
The only bread that will ultimately satisfy is the bread of life, as Jesus declared himself to be in John 6. The only water that will forever satisfy is the well of living water, as Jesus declared to be in John chapter 4. He's the good shepherd who will not lead his sheep astray, but he gives them life and he gives it in abundance. John chapter 10, verse 7, Most assuredly, verily, verily, Amen, Amen, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and they're robbers. But the sheep did not hear them, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go out. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more what? Abundantly. Superabundant in quantity. Superior in quality. This means in great excess, overflowing, abounding. Which means an exceeding measure, something above the ordinary. We see this word abundance, abundant, abundantly, to abound. We see it used in... in, in a variety of ways and I, and I want to read some of the ways in which it's used here. Romans chapter 5 verse 70, verse 17. We see it used in accordance to God's grace. For if by the one man's offense, okay, that's Adam, by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. The grace gift of Christ gives to man far more than was lost in Adam. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So this gift of grace includes righteousness. This gift of grace includes the ability to live a righteous life. A spirit-led life. A life that reflects the glory and the goodness and the power of God. Christ broke the death hold that was established by Adam's sin that transforms your nature if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you have that old fallen sinful nature that will be judged. So, in addition to resurrection power, the believer shares in the Lord's kingdom and glory here and now. Eternal perspective of life. We also see abundance used in the joy of the suffering church of Macedonia who gave in abundance though they fell under great persecution. 2 Corinthians 8.1 We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. An abundance of joy that overflowed was the product of their giving. What does your checkbook look like as a Christian? When it comes to giving. There's a heart check for the believer. Check your checkbook. Are you a slave to your money? 
you hold a white knuckle grip on your money? Or you, do you understand that you are simply, simply a steward of what God provides? For His glory. For the furtherance of His kingdom. You know, if the members of the church, just the members of this church, if the members of this church just simply tithed, there'd be no financial concerns at all. Now, it's obvious that not all members of churches who are true, who are true Christians tithe. But we happen to be blessed with the church is very giving. We have a select few that give, and they just happen to give in abundance. And I'll go looking at the roles and who gives and who doesn't give, but someone has to, and I just know that not everyone who's a member here gives. But rather than a few bearing the load, may we all give in according to His abundance that's been grace to us. Amen. Nothing's your own. Nothing's my own. When you do, you will find yourself joyous and free. Free. Abundance is also used in regard to the heart. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Hang around someone long enough. You want to know what they're really made of? It will reveal itself through their mouth. What they talk about, who they talk about, how they speak. You'll find out what the treasure of their heart is. The mouth reveals what the treasure is. So the heart is the treasure of which either good or evil are stored up. Eventually, the abundance of it will overflow. You won't miss it. Some people fake it real well for a real long time. But eventually, it reveals itself for what it truly is. The immediate context of Luke 6 here is, is false teachers. Like teacher, like student. Like root, like fruit. Whatever the root is made of, the fruit will appear. Crab apple tree doesn't, doesn't bear full, rich, sweet apples. Bears crab apples. So the idea is that is that of consistency between source and product. Garbage in, garbage out. What do you fill your mind with, believer? What we fill our minds with will make its way out. What you fill your mind with is what you meditate on. What you fill your mind and heart with is what you dream about. What you desire. Abundance or abounding is also used to describe the growing faith of the Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians 1.3 We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because, of your, but because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. Paul refers here to their spiritual progress. Expressing gratitude for what God has done. Their faith was growing more and more. Faith and love comprehend the total Christian walk. Blessed by this church, by the interest that the people of this church have. We're, we're, we're a church of 130 members. 
And on Saturday, we, we opened up a class for men to understand and learn the doctrines of grace. They have homework. They've got to meet every two weeks. They're accountable for getting their work done. Or they'll have to go. 52 men showed up. I've served in a, as an associate pastor of a church of thousands and over, would oversee men's events and men's discipleship and that. I couldn't get 50 guys to show up on a Saturday unless we were cooking waffles or something. <laughs> Pancakes and Proverbs. We gave them bagels the first day and from here on in they get nothing. Women, they come on Tuesdays. They've got 40 plus women. They're coming to learn the book of Philippians. We're blessed here. We're blessed here. But let's keep this going, amen. This abounding love is in response to the gift of eternal life that we have in Christ. This is the life that those in Christ have here and now because we pass from death to life. We understand the price that was paid from passing from death to life. We live in response to the cross, amen? How can you contain that? How can you stifle that? If you have that. If you don't have that, it's obvious how that can bear no fruit. Because the root's bad. There's no life in there for some. So, again, eternal life is not simply endless time. Because even lost people are going to live forever. They're going to live forever in hell, facing, again, the wrath of God. Many people are going to believe to be saved and they're going to end up facing the wrath of God for eternity. Paul said, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor revilers, nor drunkards, nor thieves will inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on, such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were cleansed, and you were justified, and you were sanctified. That's what you were. You used to be a homosexual. You used to be a fornicator. You used to be a drunkard. You used to be lazadaisical. But you've been washed. You've been cleansed and justified. You're, you have life. Everlasting life. Quality. Not merely quantity of time. And it's the relational experience of heaven on earth today because of a living, abiding relationship with the living water, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. The word life is one of John's key words in the gospel. He uses it at least 36 times. Jesus offers sinners eternal life and abundant life. And the only way they can get it is through personal faith in Him. That's it. That's it. Do you lack joy? Do you lack abundance of life? God has acted to grant you and me the possibility of spiritual eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ who's promised, who was promised in the Old Testament and is revealed in the New. Calling us, raising us up from dead, spiritual deadness, to give us new and abundant life in Christ. You know, the world system orchestrated by Satan can and will make you certain offers on a silver platter. Satan has no power over the believer except what you allow him to have. 
But the only offer that he makes is the offer of things. Possessions, position, or power. Nothing more than temporary lies. Jesus offers the truth of abundant life, life to its fullest, right here, right now, and forever. And ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. The life Christ offers promises both present and future blessing. There's many today who are slaves to their bodies. Look at Hollywood. You have women dying on the camera because they're anorexic because they're worried about how they appear on camera. 1 Timothy 4.8, bodily exercise profits little. Does it profit something? Yeah, it profits something, but something little. But godliness is profitable for all things. Check this out. Having promise of life that now is and of that which is to come. Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness with the common incentives that he uses on us to stimulate the physical drive, to, to raise up pride and a desire for possessions. From Satan's failed attempt to persuade Jesus to turn stones to bread, to the challenge of Jesus jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, now, to jump off of that temple, over, it overlooked the Kidron Valley, which was hundreds of feet. He tempted him to jump off to prove he was the Son of God so he could just float down on his feet and, and gain the accolades of men. Jesus quenched the temptations with what? Those fiery darts attempts, uh, temptations, he, he, he quenched them with Scripture. And then Satan, in his desperation, ups the ante. And he offered Jesus greater things. Greater things than food. Greater things than the accolades of men. He offered him the kingdoms of the world. He said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and what? Worship me. The third temptation presented to Jesus was a path to kingship that avoided the cross. The kingdoms of the world are Christ. The temptation was to take a shortcut. See, with the temptation, Satan arrives at the real issue, and that is fall down and worship me. Fall down and worship me. You know, when you strip bare all sin of its outward glamour, what it boils down to is an attempt to dethrone God and make that thing, whatever that thing is, a God with a small g. Paul was in prison, chained. Philippians 4, verse 12. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. Things cannot and will not bring life and happiness because they're temporary. And if the life of Christ is in you, which is everlasting, those things that battle for your attention will never satisfy because you have the life in you. Certain things do satisfy the flesh for a bit, don't they? New car smell. You go to the car lot, man, nothing like a new car smell. So you go shopping and shopping. You know, do we really need it? No, we don't really need it, but ooh, I would like it. Can we afford it? No. But, you know, credit, hey, you know, come on now. 
They'll never satisfy. The, the smell wears off. Get the kids in there, you start spilling your food in there, and a piece of cheese gets lodged between the seat. But it's only the foolish person that, that spends his life acquiring things and neglecting the life that Jesus Christ offers now. Jesus told of such a man in Luke chapter 12, verse 16, the man acquired so many things that he had to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. And with a sigh of relief, he said, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But you know what God said to him? You fool! You fool! This night your soul will be required of you, and then those, then, then who, and then whose will will those things be which you have provided? Get you nothing. John Piper tells a little of a little story in his book Desiring God, and I quote: He says, "Picture 269 people entering eternity through a plane crash in the Sea of Japan. Before the crash, there are a noted politician." a millionaire corporate executive, a playboy and his playmate, and a missionary kid on the way back from visiting grandparents. After the crash, they stand before God, utterly stripped of MasterCards, checkbooks, credit lines, image clothes, how-to-succeed books, and Hilton reservations. Here are the politician, the executive, the playboy, and the missionary kid all on level ground with nothing, absolutely nothing in their hands, possessing only what they brought in their hearts. It's only people that have the life of God in them that will stand justified. People whose gods were MasterCards, checkbooks, credit lines, image clothes, how-to, succeed books. If that's their God, they will stand a judgment because of their gods. Piper didn't say that. I did. Piper goes on, How absurd and tragic the lover of money will seem on that day. Like a man who spends his whole life collecting train tickets and in the end is so weighed down by the collection that he misses the last train. Don't spend your precious life trying to get rich. Paul says, For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. All things have an end. Eternal life is forever. Christ's life in you is eternal. So, the enemy says, all these things I will give you. But we must be awakened to Jesus' judgment of Satan, it says he's a liar. You're being lied to if you've fallen into that. Joy in Christ and the life he provides here and now will be zapped, drained, when you listen to the lies of the enemy and this world system. Suck dry. You become victimized by your own doing. And you become a hostage where you sit. You know, there's church pews filled today with hostages. Satan's not warring for those who are in the world. They're already his. They're lost. They're under his power. What he wants to do is take the glory that is due to God alone. 
by battling for one's attention. God or things. His strategy is deceptive because he uses them to hinder the work of the church. The church is the body. The church is the people. It's not a building, amen? It's the people. So in conclusion, four warning signs. Four warning signs of those who've been zapped of the abundant life of Christ. If you lack the abundant life that Christ provides, take heed to these warnings because these warnings are written in love. We must continually test ourselves. Warning number one, they begin to focus on other goals in life which soon take priority over the work of the church and their personal involvement in that work. They become dysfunctional members of the body. Think about your physical body. You ever broken a toe? I broke both my little toes a number of times. It debilitates the whole body. Very, very painful. Your little piggy toe. The little piggy that went to the market? That guy? Very painful. But Christians who fall into this category, who've been zapped of the abundant life and joy that God provides, they have hands that will not work. They have feet that will not travel to God's appointed place. They have a mouth that will not confess Jesus Christ to others, nor will it open its mouth to disciple their own families. They will not teach divine truth. Eventually, the ears that are attached to their heads soon fail to listen to biblical truth. They become numb numb to the deep, cutting, double-edged, dividing work of the sword, the Word of God. You know what else that sword does? It also mends. It heals. But they become numb to those truths. They have a mind that refuses to think and dwell upon biblical kingdom matters. The result is a lame, blind, deaf, complaining, prideful church member that constantly struggles to fulfill his purpose in the midst of a faithful few. That was warning number one. Warning number two is that they are lured into complacency. They become lured into complacency. Webster's Dictionary defines complacency as this, self-satisfaction especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Again, complacency. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers and deficiencies. The things that are dangerous, the deficiencies of their life, they're blind to, they become callous to. They don't even realize it. They're blind and ignorant. They just don't know. They become satisfied with less than God's desire for their lives. They become mindless Christians with limited knowledge of God's Word. Now that's not a problem in and itself, of itself because we all, we, we all lack knowledge, perfect knowledge, amen? We're continually growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ. But the problem with them is that they have no desire to know more. And they prove it because they don't dig in to gain more knowledge. They're complacent. 
They settle for an adolescent understanding rather than maturing into spiritual adulthood. As the writer of Hebrews said, you ought to have been teachers by now. I got to feed you milk like a baby because you can't handle solid food. They believe they're adults though. Well, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I know a lot of stuff. They fail to meditate upon the Word of God. They come and they sit and they listen, but they will not apply it to their lives when they walk out. They're complacent. That will zap the abundant life that Christ provides here and now. They give token gifts instead of a sacrifice. They listen to sermons. They listen to teachings with no desire to change. They'll talk about it, but they won't do it. Their concerns become earthly and childish. Childish concerns, childish interests, worldly interests. They never grow out of spiritual childhood because they're affixed on earthly childish games, earthly childish attractions, rather than the things of God. Uh, eventually they'll stop regular attendance, or at best they may attend but never become involved. I'm reading a book, a secular book, it's, it's titled Death of the Grown-Up. The term adolescent was not even used until the 1940s. It was assumed that when you have children, you raise them from children to adults. No in-between. In that book, it says that the median age of video playing male adults in 1990 was 18. These are guys that are consumed. In 2006, you know what the median age was? 30. Now, last service, someone came and says, well, it's the same guys, they're just... <laughs> In that book, it also talks about dads who raise their kids, and instead of trying to raise their kids to even dress like an adult, they put on their skateboard shoes and their baggy pants, and they strut along the wall just like their kid does, trying to relate. Death of the grown-up. Death of the example. The church is the same way if it lends itself to entertainment. They become fickle with the Word of God. You don't have any spiritual adults to look to. Spiritual adulthood. So everyone remains a child. And then you teach at an 8th grade level. So when people hit the 8th grade level, they got nowhere to go. Dangerous. That was warning number 2. They're lured into complacency. Warning number three, the enemy of our souls stifles their vision with past accomplishments. They boast in the glory of some success of the past. Oh yeah, I used to be in this ministry, we used to do this, we used to do that, and rah, rah, rah. And that's it. They're not doing anything now. They boast in the glory of the past. They might even be involved, they're just holding on so tightly to some program that's pretty much dead. It's not really working anymore, but they're holding on to it because it's got their name attached to it. They fail to dream of God's use of their lives and God's vision for the church now. And for the days that are numbered for them on this earth. They have no concern for that. That's a warning sign. They talk about the past a lot. 
See, his purpose for their lives while on this earth, as short as that is, it's vital. You don't know how many days we have. We've heard this saying before, you know, on your tombstone you have the year you were the year that you were born and the year that you died, and your life consists of the dash. What did I do in the dash? Did I live for the glory of God, by the power of God, by the life of God, by the abundant life that God provides? Or did I squander it? This is we're talking resurrection power. Remember what, where we started here. This is verse twenty six. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and his life lives in you. He dwells in you if you're saved. Also another warning, warning three. When things get tough, they bail. When things don't go their way, they throw in the towel. They talk about what they did rather than what needs to be done. Warning number four. Their senses. Their senses become enticed with false or weak teaching. And it takes them off course. See, they can't sit under sound teaching because it's too convicting. They can't sit under deep teaching because they don't want to grow. So they become numb and they want to agree with the masses that in-depth teaching or is over the top. It's too academic. It's too heavy. No. Heavy teaching, deep teaching causes you to think. It causes you to open your mind to the deep things of God. And to come to church on Sunday, you've got to start preparing your mind on Saturday night. Amen? It's true. Amen. So for them, there's these new sensations that, that have to be stirred up to fill the void, you see. So having not understood God's purpose and the significance of sound doctrine, they neither know, they neither know sound doctrine, they don't stand for sound doctrine, let alone fight for it. They just look at everyone who does as oh, you're just rigid. You're just hardcore. Truth is truth, amen? I'm wrapping up here. So having deceived themselves, they in turn delude others with a false sense of security. Oh, if you believe the facts about Christ, you're okay with God. I'm okay, you're okay. Did you say the prayer? What? You came forward, right? Oh, then you're okay. But they bear no fruit of someone who has the life in them. So, in this condition, they have to seek bigger, greater experiences. Sensational things. In order to keep the momentum going, you see. You've got to keep that stirred up. If you lend yourself to entertainment, you have to constantly be entertained. Amused. Amused means without thinking. And then this will enable some to feel some sense of spirituality or some sense of fulfillment. But it's not abundant spiritual life in Christ. It's all surface, man. It's all outward. And then the appearance of these great supposed happenings in the name of Jesus blinds their eyes to the fact that they've been taken hostage. And then their pride, it's their pride that keeps them going because they're not willing to face their sin and repent and humble themselves under the authority of the written Word of God. That's how ugly pride is. There's no abundant life in such a state because God's Word, His truth, the Gospel according to Jesus Christ is diluted 
It's watered down. And then they become victims of Paul's warning to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, that says, Beware. Lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of man, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, check this out, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him. Who is the head of all principality and power? Beware lest anyone cheat you. Cheat means to be carried away captive. See, we must realize, brothers and sisters, that it's Jesus' resurrection power that God pours into Christ's followers. There's no reason for any of us to lay among the dead. Amen? The world is dead. May we not lay among, uh, amongst them. Amen? We have life. Eternal life. Christ's life in you. That's abundant life. And that produces abundant joy. It doesn't mean everything in life is joyful. Amen? Life stinks sometimes, yeah? But we can have joy in the midst of it. Not always happy, because happiness has to do with happenings, and not all happenings are good, but you can have joy in the midst of it all. As I'm yielded to and submitted to the authority of Christ in my life, and His life is made manifest, abundantly overflowing through me into the life of others. So may we trust Him. May we... May we rise up and live as He has already given eternal life to us. And that life is abundant. Again in verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. If you're in Christ, His resurrecting power and life dwell within you. Let it be seen. Amen? He who lights a lamp does not set it on a lampstand and put a shade over it. You do not put, what? A basket over it. But you set it on the lampstand so that it illuminates it gives light to everyone in the room. They might not accept the light, but it, you, can't, you can't say it's not there. A city set on a hill could not be hidden. It's lit up at night. You can put your hand like this and say, well, I don't see a city. I don't see a city. You're only deceiving yourself. We're to be a city set on a hill. We're to be a light on the lampstand. We're to be salt. We're to be light in the midst of this world. Preservative. Illumination of the life that is in us. Resurrection. Power, baby. <laughs> You've been raised from spiritual death by the grace of God through Christ Jesus and may we live in a manner that reveals eternal, full, joyous, plentiful life that we have in Christ here and now as well as future. Amen? Now if you sit here today and you're like, I do not have that life. I don't have the life. You may not have Christ. You may think you have Christ. You must repent. You must believe that He's the life. You must call out to Him. You must confess that you're a sinner. You must admit that your sin will send you to hell. And you must face Him as who He is. He's Lord God Almighty. And my hope is that He's here pricking your heart today. You must accept Him as who He is. Not who you want Him to be, who He is. He's Lord God Almighty. Maker of heaven and earth. The one who lowered Himself to become a man. He went to the cross. He died and He rose again. No one can take His life. And just as He had power to raise Himself up again, He wants to give you the power to live a life that reflects Him. With the promise of everlasting life. But you must call on Him today in your heart. 
and you must repent of your sin. You must turn away from your sin and your rebellion. And you must turn to Christ with everything. You don't come with baggage. You've got to drop it and come to Christ on your face. Is an encouragement to believers. I want to close with a reading by Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you're unhappy, you're joyless, perhaps you're listening to the wrong person, you may be listening to yourself. Quote, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? This is in his book, Spiritual Depression. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring you back to the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody's talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, the man of Psalm 42, his thought was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. End quote. Thus we see the importance of Scripture memory. You, and then Scripture meditation. You cannot meditate on Scripture unless you have Scripture memorized. The meaning of the Scripture is the scripture. You do not do the devotion, God speak to me. You study to show thyself approved as we are as teachers to be. We exhort you to do the same. Meditate on the scripture, but you must know what the scripture means by what it says. And the Lord, by the prompting and moving of the Holy Spirit, will bring those scriptures to your mind and then you can start speaking to yourself when your thinking does not line up with the promises of God and His word. You speak against that, but you have to apply that which you know to be true. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our glorious Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your glorious word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your life-giving power, your life-changing power, your life-sustaining power that we have in Christ. Pray that we would rem be reminded moment by moment by the moving and conviction of your Holy Spirit that when we think contrary to that which is true, that we will speak the truth of your word to our souls so that we can experience the abundant life that you provide for us now, that quality of life. We already know the quantity of it. May we live out the quality of it because you are the life. For anyone who here, who's here today who does not know you, I pray for deep conviction to come upon their soul. That you bring them to the place of repentance. That you draw them to yourself, dear God. That you would grant them repentance. To believe, to receive, and to walk in everlasting life that only you can provide. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Together we all say, Amen.